Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Peter King, and welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, ESPN radio host, and maybe soon to be more than that, Mike Greenberg, and Fox NFL officiating czar Mike Pereira, the former NFL vice president of officiating. I recorded both of these conversations in Houston earlier this month when I was there for the Super Bowl. I recorded the Pereira conversation for our first ever MMQB Live podcast at St. Arnold Brewery in Houston. I asked Greenberg if his future is going to include something beyond radio. So the conversation that was brought to me was, under the right circumstances, would you be interested in trying something new? And my answer was, under the right circumstances, yes. We're working to figure out whether we get to those right circumstances or not. I asked Pereira about a special project he's working on with both officiating and veterans coming back from overseas in mind. We started a foundation called Vets to Refs. And so what we do is we give full scholarships to returning vets to become sports officials in their communities. Now my conversation with Mike Greenberg of ESPN. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, we're actually in a hotel room in Houston, Texas, and I'm with Mike Greenberg, co-host of the fabulously successful Mike and Mike show on ESPN Radio. Mike, uh, we're here in Super Bowl week, although this won't run for a couple of weeks, but I appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much. It's, it's an honor to be here. I'll, I'll tell the audience a very quick story. My first introduction to you beyond um, reading you in Sports Illustrated when I was younger was I used to, my first job in the business when I worked in Chicago I covered the Bears and I remember being in Platteville Wisconsin at their training camp and I remember you came and I remember what a big deal it was that Peter King was there and there was a <laughs> dinner there was a, a dinner and I forget where it was and I forget why it happened but there was like a dinner that all the media people went to and you were sitting next to Dave Wanstead and I was sitting sort of further away and I was watching and I remember thinking to myself like that's who I want to be someday when I was 23 <laughs> years old I remember thinking I, I want to be the guy who's like sitting next to the coach at this big dinner so yeah. um, making it to this podcast feels in some <laughs> way like I finally made it to that dinner well, I appreciate you saying that. I had no idea. I don't even remember that. But that's when, when you're 59, things just sort of slip away. I'll tell you my favorite. Want to hear my favorite story about Platteville, Wisconsin, sure. and the Bears? Yeah. You get a big kick out of this. Do you remember the year that Doug Flutie came to the Bears, was signed, 
and Ditka loved Doug Flutie. Yes. Ditka loved Doug Flutie. So I will never forget this. It's one of my vivid memories and a training camp trip ever. Platteville, Wisconsin, longtime summer home of the Chicago Bears. There is a locker room in Platteville, Wisconsin that is not far away from the fields, but far enough away so that you have to take a golf cart from the locker rooms over to the practice fields. So this one day, uh, the four quarterbacks in training camp that year came out. Jim McMahon, Mike Tomzak, I don't know who, and uh, Doug Flutie. There was room for four people on a cart. And Jim McMahon, Mike Tomzak, and the other quarterback, whose name I don't know, got on a cart and said, let's go. And as they left, they laughed. Doug Flutie was left by himself. And I just, I was there. I watched this happen. And I asked him about it afterwards. And he was basically defiant. And he said, hey, they don't have to like me. We're on the same team, but they don't have to like me. But I'll never forget that because it just, it's a great little story, kind of an apocryphal story about a locker room, a team being accepted and kind of in some ways being treated as the teacher's pet. Yeah. Which Doug Flutie was on, on that team. Where were you then? I was in college at that time. So I was, I was living in the Chicago area. I went to Northwestern, so I was in Evanston. So I remember all of that happening. I wasn't yet working or covering the team. But I do remember that the other quarterback might have been uh, Steve Fuller. Could have uh, been. Because he, he was the backup to McMahon before Tomzak got there. And he was the backup. He played a lot in the 85 season, you'll recall, because McMahon got hurt. So that he might have been the other quarterback. But yeah, those guys, I mean, it is legendary that Ditka loved Flutie and all those guys hated Flutie. And Ditka wanted to play Flutie. He wanted to win with Flutie. And maybe he could have, but things, you know, I've always thought, and again, I was a freshman in college the year of the 85 Bears. I believe, and, and I can't prove it, that in no one individual season has there ever been a better football team in my lifetime. I don't go back to the Lombardi Packers. Right. So I remember the, the, whatever you choose as the greatest of the Steel Curtain Pittsburgh teams, the greatest of the Montana-led 49ers teams, maybe the greatest of the Jimmy Johnson Cowboys teams or wherever it else, whatever, you know, if you want to put Belichick and Brady in there, whomever. In no one individual season do I think that team was better than the Bears were. And the fact that they only won once with all of those players, I, I, th I think is really a shame. And I think it is a testament to the fact that it was so combustible. You can only fit so many large objects into a small casing for a, a short period of time until they all just start to fly. You know out. what was so weird about that team? And I remember this because... That year, I covered the New York Giants playoff game at Soldier Field mm. where Sean Landetta whiffed on the punt, 21-0, yeah. I think. And I said, my God, the Bears, nobody's beating the Bears. That was, it wouldn't have mattered who was playing them. They were just not going to lose the game. But what was so interesting about that, you speak about combustible characters. I remember the night of the game, like Walter Payton was ticked off. Yeah, The fridge scored a touchdown, he didn't. Ditka was ticked off basically, that Walter Payton was ticked off. Ditka was ticked off that Buddy Ryan gets carried off the field. It was just a weird, weird time. Plus, the Super Bowl shuffle, usually in football, when things like that happen, things don't last. Right. And I, I do think you it's great to have egos. I think it's fantastic to have egos. But I do think at that time, I'm a, Ditka was so funny to cover. I will ne I'll never forget this. I get to Sports Illustrated, it's maybe, 
I don't know, 89 or 90, and they have a game at Washington one week. And so Brian Harlan, the PR guy, said, I said to him, hey, and I came in on Saturday. I really wanted to see Diddy. Well, he can't see you, but, and this is a one o'clock game on Sunday in Washington. And he says, why don't you come over and have breakfast with, with Mike in the morning? And I said, my God, I've never talked to a coach of a team on the day of a game. You know, it's like in the NBA where, where it always has shocked me. You know, you you know, Carmelo Anthony has got to talk six times during the course right. of the day. It's shoot around before the game, after the game. You know, it's just – and that to me, you know, was Ditka. I always I, – I mean, I really loved Ditka. I really did. He was such a fun character – you know, I think he was a good football coach. I don't think he was a great football coach, but I think he was a good football coach who understood that the team and the coaches and surrounding himself with really good people was the smartest way to win. Yeah. yeah. The first event I ever got paid to cover was a Bears draft. It was the year that they took um, Alonzo Spellman in the first round, and I got paid $20. I got to Hallis Hall at 10 o'clock in the morning. I sat there. They made, in those days, I think they made two or three picks on the first day. Ditka, I remember he came waddling in as he does the way he walks with that big sweater and that big cigar. And I thought it was the greatest thing of all time. And I think I worked 15 hours that day, got paid 20 bucks, and I thought it was the best day of my life. And Ditka was going to his press conferences, his Wednesday press conferences then, was like going to a movie. I would have paid, I would have paid admission to get to go and sit there and just listen to him talk. Because I think he would really only talk once a week then or twice maybe. Um, and then he would do paid appearance. He would do a, a radio appearance. He would do a Channel 2 appearance. Whatever it was. Ditka was and when I tell people this, they don't believe it, but working locally in Chicago at that time, Mike Ditka in Chicago was bigger than Michael Jordan was. He was a bigger deal in town. Michael Jordan, of course, nationally and globally, was the biggest star in the world at that same time. But in Chicago, Ditka was actually the bigger deal. Wow. And with Mike Greenberg of ESPN on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So I want to go way back, Mike, and ask you, you're a New York guy. You are born in New York in 1967. You grew up in New York, you know, just barely on the cusp of the Willis Reed, you know, kind of out of your memory bank just a little bit. But where do you think your incredible, insatiable love of sports came from? Oh, the easiest uh, question you'll ever ask me. And that came directly from my family. So I have a brother, a younger brother, and then my parents. My father's no longer with us. But we want my parents were both crazy sports fans so my dad grew up both my parents grew up in the bronx my mother grew up walking distance from yankee stadium she can still imitate phil rizzuto's batting stance my father lived and died with the yankees in the 40s he dedicated his first book to joe dimaggio and so the way that we the overwhelmingly the best memories i have of my childhood were of going to games i always jokingly say that golik and i are from two different kinds of sports families golik's father played football he and his brothers played football his sons played football i'm from a jewish sports family we had season tickets so we had season we had season tickets to the jets and the knicks and um i lived and died with it i mean i, I if when i'm 100 years old if you wake me up from a dead sleep and say, name every member of the 1981 New York Jets, I will be able to do it. That was the first Jet team that made the playoffs in my conscious lifetime because I'm not old enough to have seen Namath except at the very, very end. 
but that 81 team with Richard Todd and I mean Marvin Powell and Chris Ward and uh, all those guys in the defense which had the sack exchange that, that that was my favorite still is my favorite team ever and so that was it we we that was all we talked about that was kind of all we cared about when the Jets made a, a playoff run one year that ended in the AFC championship game um, the famous AJ Dewey game there's a restaurant in New York City called Pete's Tavern which is not that far away from my house it's on Irving Plaza you may know it it's, it's where O Henry wrote the gift of the Magi and um, the Jets started winning. And so we ate dinner there the first night. So we just decided that was good luck. So we <laughs> ate dinner in that restaurant every Sunday night that the Jets played and ordered the same food uh, <laughs> every week because it was working. You're a sports weirdo. We're a sports. We, I believe in all of that stuff. A Golik makes fun of me all the time. I firmly believe in all of those things. If, 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 I'm in, if I'm watching a game that I have a real passionate interest in and things are going well, no one's allowed to move in the room, in the living room. I'm not at the game. I'm talking about in my house. No one's allowed to move. No one's allowed to say anything. I, I believe strongly in all that stuff. I, I don't know how it happens, but somehow that stuff works. So you are a huge sports fan in New York, and yet you're a really kind of well-read guy. You've written two novels. A lot of times people who are huge sports fans are really kind of myopically focused on sports and don't develop other parts of their lives. How did you develop sort of the English gene? Well, my parents were writers, so so uh, my, they were travel writers. So my parents, my dad was a lawyer and my, my mother was a teacher. But didn't they have a bookstore? Correct. So that's how that it ultimately evolved to that. So when I was uh, a little kid, my parents, uh, before I was born, my dad was a lawyer. My mom was a third grade teacher at PS11 in New York City. And they, one summer, two years before I was born, 1965, they wanted to go to South America. They had been to Europe. They didn't have very much money. Both of my parents grew up with no money at all. Um, and so they had never traveled anywhere. And so when they got married and my dad was making a little bit of money and my mother was too, every year during the summer, because my mom was a teacher, they would take a trip somewhere. So they had been to Europe. They wanted to go to South America. And they found that there were no travel guides to South America. So my father was able to get in touch with Arthur Fromer, who is a legendary travel yeah. publisher, and basically said to him, we're going to go to South America. If we write a book, will you publish it? And that became South America on $5 a day, which they then updated probably, they wrote the Fromer South America book probably for 35 or 40 years. They wow. did that into and every year. They then developed their own series of travel guides called the Alive Guides because they found that South America, there was no travel guide. So they wrote Rio Alive and Caracas Alive. So my brother and I, every summer of my childhood, spent it in South America. We, we traveled all over South America, every single, I mean, for probably two months in the summer. And so then but they, they opened a bookstore. They bought uh, a, a, the Complete Traveler bookstore, which was at the time the first travel bookstore in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they owned and operated that for years. And then a combination of like superstores, Barnes & Noble and all that put them out of business. But my dad by that time had developed like a passion for almost an obsession with used and rare books, like like first edition rare books. So he just transferred the store over to that. It became a, a rare uh, collectible bookstore, and it was until he just couldn't operate it anymore, which was, in, which was three years ago. Um, we closed it. It was a New York institution. The New York Times wrote a beautiful piece I remember about it. It the store really when cool, it closed. Cool it was. Story, I was yeah. so thrilled. My dad, unfortunately, was really sick at that time, so he couldn't really appreciate 
how much it meant to the city and how much the store meant to people. And then he died relatively shortly thereafter. But um, so that store was always in my life. I, I grew up in that store. I grew up working in that store in the summers uh, when I was in high school and stuff. Um, so I was always around that. And, and then I would also say that um, there are people in the world who knew more about sports than my father. And there are people in the world who knew more about opera than my father. But no one knew more about sports and opera than my father. In, addi- <laughs> in addition to the Jets and the Knicks, we also had season tickets at the Metropolitan Opera. So I grew up going to the opera six times a year with my dad um, from the time I was five until I graduated from high school. Um, do you so, like opera? Yes, I do. And, and my parents also loved theater. I mean, they were they were very... They were very sophisticated people for people who grew up penniless. All four of my grandparents were immigrants from Poland. And my, my parents really grew up. They're, they're perfect examples of what the American dream is supposed to what's be. Your favorite, what's your favorite play of all time? <sighs> I mean, you have to divide it between musicals. I and mean, right now, the best thing I've ever seen is Hamilton, without question. Growing up, I loved Guys and Dolls. I remember going to see Guys and Dolls, one of the revivals of it, in the, in sometime in the 70s. But I mean, I loved, I remember when I was a kid, I loved Greece on Broadway. My mom took me to see Greece. I remember going to see, and then, and then when you get to, to plays, to theater, I saw Peter O'Toole in Pygmalion. I saw James Earl Jones in Fences. Just this year, Stace and I went to see The Humans, which won the Tony, which was, I thought, I saw that too. I yeah. loved it. Yeah. But it was it, in, that's one of the that's one of the saddest. It was sad. That is really an incredibly sad night at the theater. It was. It was like the Manchester by the Sea. I, t- of, I of tell plays. everybody if you want to get incredibly depressed and be within ten minutes of doing physical harm to yourself, <laughs> go to see Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> it was very sad, but I thought brilliant. It was I loved great. That movie. Casey Affleck's unbelievable. Yeah, I don't know if this is going to air before or after the Oscars. He unquestionably should win the Oscar. I was. I was. Um, I haven't seen Fences. You know that kid was good in that movie. He was fabulous. The kid was really yes, good in that movie. Fabulous, exactly movie. like a kid would act. Yes, I think. I, I thought it was a magnificent movie. Yeah. But so going back, Hamilton. Wait, wait a minute, Ham- yeah. Okay, so can the I, best thing I've ever seen. Can Not I give you? Close. Can I tell you my little Hamilton story? Sure, of course. My wife, uh, we we don't we're not huge theater goers. We go to maybe two plays a year. And so she said, hey, a friend of mine's coming into town. We want to go see Hamilton. And I said, hey, great. And so she said, the tickets are like $550, even just to get in. Yeah. And I said, oh, my gosh. And this is, it was huge, but it didn't quite reach the critical mass yet, okay? But it was, it was big. And so I did not know much about Hamilton at all. I knew that Obama had gone, but I didn't really know very much about it. And so I walk in there, and the problem is, if you don't know and you haven't really listened to the music before you go in there, it's hard to follow, because it's hard to listen to rap and to get every word, you know, and if you only get every every other word or every third word there, you miss an incredible amount of the story. So I found myself listening to the music afterwards and saying, man, I wish I had listened to this to this soundtrack 10 times before I had gone, then my appreciation would have gone up exponentially. Yeah, I would agree. I enjoyed it more the second time I saw it. We also saw it before it became the the toast of the town. My mother-in-law, I'll give her all the credit in the world, she had seen In the Heights, which was Lin-Manuel Miranda's first 
play our first musical and loved it. And so when she heard about Hamilton coming from where it was at the small theater called the Public Theater downtown to Broadway, she said, we have to go. So we all went and we all liked it a lot. But much like you, it was not that easy to follow. Well, in the inter- uh, in the in the you know next couple of weeks and months, my kids in particular became obsessed with the soundtrack, and I said I got I have to go back. And and fortunately for me, I had um, through social media befriended some of the members of the cast, so I was able to wangle us going back and seeing it the second time. I would agree with you. I enjoyed it more. I, I knew every line before it was coming, and that was great fun. And the other interesting thing about seeing it now is that almost everyone in the theater knew every word to every song. So it's almost like being at a concert because when the song starts, every, people start cheering at the beginning of a song, you know, like they yeah, might yeah. At, at, at Paul McCartney or something like that because everyone knows the song. So it's a totally different theater-going experience than anything I've ever seen. The producers, when Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick did it, um, and I am a Mel Brooks freak, I thought was the most overwhelming thing that I had seen in the theater just in terms of the popularity of it and the phenomenon of it. But Hamilton has eclipsed that, I think, by by a wide margin. And, and here's how I knew that you know that Hamilton has reached ridiculous proportions. I go to the NFC Championship game and the Atlanta Falcons come out of the tunnel and everybody's all excited. The place is going nuts at the Georgia Dome and the song that's playing is My Shot. Yeah. And so... You know, because there's so much meaning to that in terms of, you know, this is our shot and, and all that stuff. And I asked one of the guys with the Falcons, I said, wow, you got a, you got a song from the Hamilton soundtrack. And he goes, we know our audience. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it was phenomenal. really it The was Skylar cool. Sisters are singing at the Super Bowl and, you know, the, the three women who played the Skylar Sisters yeah. in the original. So it's great. I mean, a Hamilton, my family is completely obsessed. Yeah. Okay. Mike Greenberg on the podcast. So, um... Why do you think, Mike, that I, I'll ask you this question, not just about your show, but in general, here we are at the Super Bowl. So this is my 33rd Super Bowl and Radio Row at the Super Bowl used to be six radio stations, if that. And there wasn't a Radio Row. They would just be in the lobbies of the hotels. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, I remember the New York Giants because I covered the Giants for Newsday in 86. And that year, they're quite literally... I. I mean, I remember that vividly. There weren't radio stations there. I, I mean, they, they may have been at other places, but they, they, they weren't, you know, like at the media center. So what is it about sports talk radio that really gets people, A, fired up, B, involved? Well, I think that, like anything else, timing plays a large role in all of this. So the sports talk phenomenon, as I have seen it, I, I mean, this is my 21st Super Bowl. So the first one, I, and they're not consecutive. So I, I've been to 21 total, but there was, it was a three-year period in there when I was first came to ESPN that I didn't go. So the first Super Bowl I covered was Cowboys-Bills, the first of the back-to-back ones in, in Pasadena, the Rose Bowl, January of 93. And I made that observation. I, I was representing a radio station in Chicago, the first all-sports station in Chicago, and they didn't send a show. They just, it was incredible. They sent me and I was here with a cell phone and I was going up to the media availabilities and trying to put guys on his, I remember putting Jay Novacek on the talk show back to Chicago. And, um, and then other than that, I was just taping interviews. What the cell phone look like? Was it one of those Huge. monster things? That yes. Looks it like actually hung up into itself. It actually had like a base. <laughs> um, and, and it was like the, it was like the bat phone. I'm carrying the bat phone around. Um, and so yeah, Jay Novacek is holding the phone part and I'm holding the base part and I had to stay close enough to him because they were connected by a cable. 
So it was very, very different than it is now. But what I think has happened is that the growth in popularity of football and the growth in popularity of sports talk have come together, and it's not coincidental. I think the extraordinary growth of interest in football in this country has done a lot to spur the, the interest in, in sports talk, in, in talk radio. WFAN came on the air whenever it was. They did sometime in the 80s. I think 86 or 85. Probably right. Like I grew up yeah. in New York. I, I left for college in the fall of 85. It was sometime after that. Yeah. Whenever they started with Mike and Chris and, and all those people there, that got a little bit of momentum and it was successful. And like every other business in the world, this is a copycat business. So I believe that the station I worked at in Chicago, WSCR, which is still there, the score, we weren't the second, but we were among the next few. There weren't a lot of them at that time. And there was success. And, and you, it is all built around football. WFN may be different because New York is such a, such a baseball, baseball market. Town, yeah. That I think they could build their shows probably through the baseball season on baseball. In Chicago, we definitely couldn't. And nationally, you can't even think about it. Nationally. You know what's funny about your show now yeah. that you mentioned that? Yeah. I'm always amazed that even around the time of pennant races, you very rarely have baseball guests on, baseball players on when football season is happening. Yeah. You are like, you're so NFL centric. And I've always wondered about that because look, I'm a huge baseball fan mm -hmm. and I'll go to 25 games a year on my training camp trip every year. Once I get all the cities, I look and see, okay, are the Braves in town when we go see the Falcons? I was thrilled last year. I was here in Houston for almost two full days and I saw two Astros Rangers games while I was here. So I love baseball. And I always wish, like I was saying to myself one day, listen to your show, man, I wish they had, they'd have Mookie Betts on. Like I love the Red Sox. wish they had Mookie Betts on. And one of the reasons is I don't think I've ever heard Mookie Betts speak. Yeah. And isn't it amazing that, you know, I've heard now Dak Prescott, you know, just hit the, I've seen Dak Prescott interviewed 9,000 times. Right. And he's a rookie in the NFL. And yet Mookie Betts almost won the MVP, and I couldn't pick his voice out of a police lineup. Well, so here's... There Tell are, me I, why. I can give you a bunch of reasons. Yeah. First and foremost, sports talk is based, is built on passion and emotion, right? It's not built on information and news. Even in an era where news and information did not come into your phone, you know, 24 hours a day... Sports talk and talk radio in general are not built on information. They're built on passion and emotion. So in order to create that, if you're a fan of the Red Sox, which I know you to be, if I start getting crazy about a pitching change that the manager of the Diamondbacks made in a game against the Rockies last night, you don't care I'm at turned, all. I'm changing the channel. Yeah, exactly. you're right. That's right? good. Whereas if I start talking about a quarterback decision that Bruce Arians is making in Arizona... I got a much better chance that you're interested, a much better chance. You might not be, but I have a much better chance that you are. That's number one. Number two, sports talk in general now and almost everything in our society is built on stars, on star power, right? Mookie Betts, who's a terrific baseball player. In fact, I would go so far as to say, are there 10 baseball players that could walk into the lobby of this hotel and right people now, would know who they are. And the majority of people would know who they are. No. There aren't. No way. There aren't. I use my wife as, as, a, as, a, as a barometer who would it be? Okay. all the time. Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. People would know Clayton Kershaw, yeah. right? Yeah. People would know Mike Trout. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Yeah. Although Mike Trout is a little bit of an everyman look. Yeah. He's not He's not very distinctive looking. Right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Big Poppy, everybody would know. He's retired. Yeah. 
Alex Rodriguez probably retired. Derek yeah. Jeter retired. Yeah. I mean, most of the biggest stars in the sport are not the biggest stars in the sport. Now, look, there's a ton of great young ball players yeah. all over the country right now. All these young guys on the Madison Cubs. Madison Bumgarner I mean, people the, would know, right? Because he's got that, that yeah. very, very distinctive look. And look, the Cubs, I think, you know, Chris Bryant's a great looking young kid. Yeah. And they've got a bunch of young players, Javi Baez and all these guys who, I, you know, could develop some star power. But they but don't have it now. Generally speaking, they're yeah. not stars. Yeah. The NBA players are the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. The NBA players, the biggest stars in the NBA are, are, are like movie stars that, you know, there was nothing about LeBron James that is less famous than insert whomever you wish, Taylor Swift or, or whoever the you right. know, Lady Gaga, whoever the biggest stars are in entertainment. That's not true of even the, the biggest stars in our sport. I use my wife as, as, um, as a perfect barometer of this. I'll give you an example. Uh, I love golf, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll be watching the golf on a Sunday and my wife will walk into the room and just say, what's going on? And I'll say, Oh, it's unbelievable. Ernie Els, Ricky Fowler, and Keegan Bradley are in a three-way playoff, and, and she'll say, oh, good, enjoy that. Now, she walks in another time, and she says, what's going on? I'll say, Tiger Woods is playing great. She'll say, oh, okay, and she'll sit down, and she'll watch. Right. Now, Tiger Woods, that dynamic in my house has changed a little bit in recent years, but, but right. the point remains that it's about stars. People are interested in stars, and if there's one thing Major League Baseball, I think, has not done a great job of in the last 15 years, I think they are getting better at it. It is developing stars. It is. It is. You know why those, I think. You know why I think there. that is. Yeah. Because in football, okay, what what happens on this big stage the other day? Okay, somehow, some way, I don't know how. I'm sure they don't necessarily want to do it, but there's Tom Brady and Matt Ryan on a stage at Minute Maid Park with Sal Palantonio answering a couple of questions each. Okay, and so what they're doing is they're not only hyping the game, but they're building Matt Ryan's brand. Mm -hmm. That's on national TV. And very, very seldom, I think, in baseball, if you're not in this Cubs-Cleveland World Series necessarily, which was really, that trumps everything. But if, if you're not in that, no matter how big the game is, to me, we don't see the huge players in baseball nearly enough as people. And it's different. Okay, so when I was growing up, the game of the week on Saturday was everything mm-hmm. on NBC. And everybody watched it. But now there's 900 games on every week. Every baseball game you could watch if you wanted to. And so that almost works against itself. Nothing is special in baseball. No game is particularly meaningful until September 22nd. Okay, so I those are the things that work against it. But I do agree with you. I wish that we had more exposure, even if Madison Bumgarner... When Madison Bumgarner came to New York when he was the Sportsman of the Year for SI, whatever, two years ago, I went that night and I had a 20-minute conversation with him about how he reminded me of Eli Manning. And he loves football. And so we were talking about that. And, and he, he was so... I, I think he, he, you don't tell when, when he's excited. But I think he was excited. But I said to him, here's why you remind me of Eli Manning. And I told him a story about Justin Tuck after the last Patriots-Giants Super Bowl, where Eli Manning makes that ridiculous throw to Mario Manningham on the sidelines, the 38-yard throw that jump-started the winning drive, blah, blah, blah. And so I, th- I just thought to myself, hey, Eli Manning will play... 20 years, it won't matter. That's the best throw of his life. College, high school, I don't care. You know. So I remember Justin Tuck, I was standing there with him, and Eli Manning was in a phalanx of nine yellow-coated security guys being rushed through the locker room out to some interview or other. And he had a blank look on his face. It was a flat line look. And Justin Tuck said, 
See, that's what's great about Eli Manning. He'd look like that if we lost this game. In other words, you know, be a flatliner. Madison Bumgarner, that's what he is. Yeah. He's out there. Every pitch is the same. He could be pitching at San Diego in April or in the World Series on November 1st, and every pitch would be the same. And he thought that that was totally the key to his success. I would agree with that. What I would say, just thinking back to the, your, your previous question about star power and all of that, Eli Manning is actually very much exposed in all of that. Right. And part of that is because he's the quarterback of the New York Giants, and part of that is because he's a Manning. But he isn't a particularly interesting public right. figure. Baseball, however... <laughs> he works at that, right. I think, <laughs> to be uninteresting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sometimes kind of funny in commercials and things, but but that's he's not a big outgoing personality like many others are. But look at... Baseball is a sport where it, from the moment they start playing it on a very serious, organized level, it is just beaten into their heads that they are not supposed to call attention to themselves, right? You flip a bat more right. than four right. feet away, and people are going to lose their minds. Didn't in you football, like the Jose Bautista I loved thing? it myself, I and I got great. a lot of disagreement from a lot of baseball people and no disagreement from anyone else. It might be time to change. I don't <laughs> like so, so. So I think the NFL is going too far in trying to get rid of that. Oh, it's ridiculous. So, so my, my son, Stephen, who is 14 years old, had to do a, a presentation in his at school for two minutes on anything he wanted. He did a presentation where he, he got up and acted out the touchdown celebrations of like seven different NFL players. And in the end, he said six of these were a penalty. And That's so clever. Why in Very the world clever. is that a penalty? Yeah. Why in the world? Who is you know which one? This? You know which one really ticked me off the this guy year? laid down in the end zone? No, no. The one Tennessee. that really ticked me off this year was Vernon Davis shooting a free throw right. over the crossbar. And he got fined $12,800 for doing that. That's ridiculous. I find that to be, I don't care if Vernon Davis makes $2 billion a year. I find it positively reprehensible that the NFL would take one quarter of the average American salary in the course of a year from any person, no matter how much they make, for mildly celebrating and showing nobody up right showing nobody up that's the thing that more than anything I, well there's a lot of things that tick me off but that really gets my goat it really does yeah so but that's one of the things that football and basketball have that baseball does not right so when you and i were young you're a little older than i am but not that much you know i remember i knew joe morgan if you, if you did joe morgan's batting stance or he right. knocked that elbow yeah. everyone knew it and pete rose's batting stance and guys had you know now every, all the kids can do the touchdown celebrations all the kids do the lebron you know they they all do his celebration all that kind of stuff baseball doesn't have that baseball the kids aren't all dying to be like the baseball players and i think that's a big factor in what you were talking about as well this is the mmqb podcast we all know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal no one makes it easier for you to do that than blue apron their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and bring you only the best ingredients all right to your door. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash MMQB. Think about it. Three free meals. 
just by adding MMQB. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash MMQB. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Finishing up with Mike Greenberg. So, Mike, obviously, I think everybody kind of knows now the news is out or has been out that you might go and do a television show for ESPN and leave the radio. Richard Deitch reported it at SI.com. What is your future? What are you going to do? So depending on when this – we're having this conversation on February 2nd. Right. Um, I can tell you in all honesty that there are a ton of decisions that have to get made that have not yet been made. I'm not saying anything that's been written is inaccurate or anything like that. It just is premature. So there's a lot of conversation amongst a lot of people, Mike and me and the people that we work for, about the way the business is changing. And there are different considerations that our executives have to have. Um, And so the conversation that was brought to me was, under the right circumstances, would you be interested in trying something new? And my answer was, under the right circumstances, yes. We're working to figure out whether we get to those right circumstances or not. My gut feeling is we will, but the only disappointment I have in this is that our audience, which started out as basically almost nothing, and those people who've been with us for all of these years, 17 years. Yeah, I, I joined my Golic started with Tony Bruno in, in, in late 1998. They lasted about a year. I came and filled in with Mike a few times in late 99. We really launched together as a team the very beginning of 2000. So to me, it's 17 years and change now. Whenever the time comes that this decision gets made, I would have wanted it to be on our show where we announced it to the world and, and well, can it still be? our feelings. Yes, I think there will be a lot of, yeah, yeah they're tell, you know, like who the world didn't know that, you know, yeah. unfortunately. So that's a shame. So I'm not, if we're having this conversation a month from now or if this is airing a month from now, maybe whatever it is that we decide has been announced already. Right now, again, as of February 2nd, I'm telling you that we're still figuring it out. Yeah. Um, and but, but, okay, so let me ask you a little bit about, uh, that was going to be the last thing I was going to ask you, but yeah. you raised some. I, you know, we, we talk at the MMQB all the time, and I tell everybody, we got a young staff. The average age of my staff, other than me, is 29 years old. And I always say, look, I'm 59. I'm a dinosaur. I'll be gone soon. But you guys are the future, and you have to figure out how to get content to people in a way that they'll consume it. And it'd be great if we could all be sports writers forever and just go to press boxes and we sell ads to Ford and to Chevy and, and Budweiser, but they, they don't want that anymore. The world is changing. So I would just ask you, where's the media going and how will people consume media? And one of the reasons I'm doing a podcast right now is that I think that people want to consume media when they want to consume it. For sure. But what do you think? I always tell my kids, the people who can figure that stuff out are going to be the next billionaires. They're going to be the next Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all that. If I knew the answer, it'd be me. I'm always going to be a person who is in the business of creating the content. That, that's all I know how to do. I, I don't know the business side of it. My philosophy generally has always been create the best content, create the best sports conversation you possibly can. And then let other people figure out how to get it to people. I work for a company very happily that they have been, I think we have been at ESPN, among others, certainly not the only ones, 
but sort of at, at the on the cutting edge of figuring those things out. Um, we were podcasting, doing a ton of podcasting when everyone wasn't, and all of that. We changed the name from ESPN Radio of the department to ESPN Audio years ago because that's what it is now. It's audio. It's just content you listen to. It doesn't have to be on a radio. It can be on the radio. It can be on Sirius XM. It can be on a podcast. It can be on an app. It can be streaming online. The the So the question that is of, of interest to me sort of – taking what you asked me and, and spinning it slightly. When I go talk at, at a high school or a college or something like that, and young people who are interested in becoming broadcasters and stuff ask me, how should I get started now? I don't know what to tell them. So I'm the last So what do you tell them? Well, the, so I'll, I'll tell you. So I am the last generation of sports broadcasters who are going to start in a little tiny market in Montana and then work up to Topeka, Kansas, and then work your way up to this and that. Because I think five years from now, if, if it's even that long, so many of these smaller and mid-market television stations locally won't even do sports anymore. So what I tell them now is do things like this. Get together with, your, with a friend of yours. This is college kids. I'm at Northwestern two months ago talking to college kids. Get together, do a podcast, sit down, talk about sports, come up with a plan, formulate it, do it, record it, put it up on all your social media platforms, tell your friends, get it out there, retweet it. I got an email from one of the, the young people, a, a kid who's a freshman at Medill um, recently. He said, we started a podcast, we record it once a week, we have 324 followers, <laughs> but they're doing it, right? Yeah. So what I did when I was in college, I had a little tape recorder and I would get the Chicago Tribune and when I was having breakfast, I would read the stories, the game stories, as though I was reading a broadcast into the tape recorder and then I would listen to it and then I would, I was the only person who ever heard it. Now you can do that and you can get it out there and who knows? So the answer to your question is I have no idea where it's going. No idea how people are going to consume television content, how people are going to consume audio. I do know there will always be a desire for it in some form. And so my goal, I'm almost 50 now. I'd, I'd like to, I, I don't think, I don't, I still feel like I'm closer to the beginning than the end. It's probably not true. But I, in my mind, I feel that way. I feel like I will need to adapt my style to fit whatever the, the, the media dictates. But generally speaking, I think I will always be on the side of creating the content. And so my intention is just to continue doing that the best I can until I'm done. But like I said before, I told my kids, if you can figure out where it's going to go, then you're not going to make millions, you're going to make billions. And, and that would be even better. Mike Greenberg, pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. It's an honor. You've been one of the people I've really looked up to for my whole career. So thank you for having me. Hey, thank you. It's the MMQB Podcast. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites. Then they ensure that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work, and you save time and money. Now, pay attention. Here's the best part. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's 20 bucks right in your pocket. To get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app and go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Then enter promo code MMQB. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code 
MMQB today. Ladies and gentlemen, from Fox Sports, former NFL official, former NFL vice president of officiating, Mike Pereira. Thanks, Mike. You know, can I just tell my Bill Belichick story? Please do. Good. For all those things about his education, his uh, X and O's, I actually went to Wellington Mara's Wake in New York. And Bill was there. Bill was on the other side in the crowd there. And we actually, from my side, as the head of officiating at the time, he saw me and he looked at me and I looked at him. And then as the wake ended, we walked out side by side. And he looked at me and just in his Bill Belichick way said to me, as the head of officiating, he said, you know, Mike, you look like shit. <laughs> He did. He said that to me. And he said, I'm looking across the room at you. You look tired. You look beat up. And he said, and I realized something. He said, you never win, do you? And I said, no, not really. He says, you have 16 losers you have to deal with every week, don't you? And I go, yeah, I do. And he says, well, you know, when a coach wins, the feeling is euphoric when you win. When you lose, it's just unbelievably awful and he said and I was looking across the room and he said I feel bad for you and he said so I'm going to tell you when you've had a bad week and even when maybe we lose a game I'm going to call you and tell you hey your guys are doing a good job just to make you feel better you know last he night he never called <laughs> never called so I should tell you a little bit about Mike Pereira the life and times of Mike Pereira Mike grew up in California. He uh, never thought for a second he was ever going to be an official until he was 20. He'll tell that story in a second. And then he climbed the ladder of officiating and became uh, a college official and then became an NFL official. After that, uh, he became an NFL executive in charge of officiating. And what I think is so interesting about Mike's story is that he basically blazed a trail that other people specialists sort of in his industry have been following and will continue to follow, which is the ability to uh, sum up exactly what happened on a play and whether the officials are right or wrong about 15 seconds after the play happened and to do it in about 12 seconds. Because as somebody who's worked in TV for a long time, the ability to be good on TV has very little to do with whether you can explain something correctly. It's about whether you can explain something correctly in 13 seconds, because otherwise they don't want you, you know? And so, Mike, the first thing, though, that I really wanted to ask you that I thought was so interesting about sort of your world, Bill Belichick touched on it some. You were the vice president of officiating in the NFL for, I believe, nine years. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So for nine years, every Monday, Really, the time that Mike Pereira got on Monday, you know, where everybody else's highlights happen on Sunday, Mike's real game happens on Monday because that's when everybody in the NFL is calling him. Can you describe what an average Monday is like for the NFL vice president of officiating? Terror. <laughs> Terror. Terror. I, I mean, the, the, the thing that's 
so interesting about it is that when I started um, and took over the program basically in 2001, um, it was a Monday game. It was a Monday game, and that's when the coaches called or sent in their reports. Then it became a Sunday night game when coaches would call me on Sunday night right after the games. In some cases, like Jeff Fisher would call me from his truck, his pickup truck on the, truck on the way home. And then the all-time was Jim Mora, who called me from Seattle at halftime of their game. Wow. Throwing a rant about one pass interference call and one replay decision, and I'm going to him. I actually had walked by my office on the way to get a piece of cold pizza, and my phone's ringing, I pick it up, and it's him, and he's ranting, and I'm going, hey, coach, you have 12 minutes. Are you going to make any adjustments? You're behind. I mean, you want to, you want to, and, and he went on, um, you know, for a couple of minutes, but I, I actually, I would say that I enjoyed dealing with the coaches, I did. Um, I learned lessons. I learned lessons that maybe I wish I had earlier in life. Um, I learned that I could get nowhere by arguing with a coach, but I could get everywhere by listening. And then after letting him have his say, then point out my, um, my thoughts on the play. But most, uh, you know, most, most of the time, um, I would never fail to admit when we were wrong. And I think that in previous administrations, sometimes it was always defend, 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 defend your officials, but um, I took kind of an opposite approach. Um, but I would say over the course of a week, I probably had 12 different coaches call me, and I would respond to 250 inquiries about plays from games, whether they thought it was holding or not holding, whether that the call was good or the call was bad, and um, it, it was pretty fun. No, you, it wasn't fun. I don't. That's I'm lying to say that, but it's pretty in, interesting. You were an NFL official for two years, and I covered a game once, Jets in Miami, in Miami, and I was on the field after the game briefly, and Bill Parcells, who at the time was the the coach of the New York Jets came after Mike Pereira and uh, one of his fellow officials, Tom Sifferman, and Bill was as angry as I think I've ever seen a football coach. So I thought that the reaction by Mike and then the next day by Bill Parcells was a story that you should hear about the relationship between the officials and coaches in the NFL. In this particular game in Miami, it was my second and final year, um, on a fourth down play, a pass at the end of the game on fourth down to Corbett, who controls the ball, and in our day of ages now that we're in, what's a catch, what's not a catch. Back in 1997, he's going to the ground, the knee hits, the elbow hits, lunges, ball comes out ruled incomplete by Tom Sifferman on the other side of the field. Not me, but on the other side of the field. Back in those days, it actually should have been a catch, but there was no instant replay, and Bill went out of his mind. I mean, went out of his mind. He was, 
he was so angry. I mean, it did cost him the first down and the opportunity to win the game, and now the game's over. It's kneel downs for the Dolphins, and he was so angry, and he yelled at me, and it, like, you know, it was one of my best-ass chewings I've ever got. And at the end of the game, he knew it wasn't me, but at the end of the game, he, when the clock hit zero, he started running across the field to the other official, this guy Tom Zifferman. And, um, and I, was, I was worried. I mean, I was worried. I was worried that he was going to do something that was going to get him in trouble. And so I ran with him. And when he got to Tom Sifferman, I stood in between him and Tom Sifferman. Well, AP took a photo of this. And what they did was they cut Tom Sifferman out of the picture. So it looks like that Bill Parcells is screaming at me when he's actually screaming over my shoulder at Tom Sifferman. And it's printed in every newspaper, practically. We leave. I fly back to Sacramento from Miami. I get home about midnight. It's one of those that was early on in my career. So my wife, who's here somewhere, she picked me up to the air, in the, in the, um, at the airport. She actually said it was midnight. She was sitting on the hood of her car. I remember. She probably doesn't. She said, did you make that call? And... <laughs> She was being so sympathetic, and I said, no, it wasn't me, it was Sifferman. Then she said, well, then get in the car and let's go home. I mean, she had no tolerance. But So anyways, went to work the next day, came back from work, and on her phone, we were living at her house, um, there was a message, a voicemail, and it was Bill Parcells. And Bill Parcells calls and says, Mike, Bill Parcells, he said, I just want to apologize. No one deserves to be yelled at like that. You have no reason to forgive me the way I treated you. I am embarrassed of my actions. And um, my immediate thought, I, I looked at my schedule. I said, I must have the Jets again coming up, you know. <laughs> but I didn't. And um, I, I just thought, you know, that reflected the man to me. That reflected the man, and that's one of those things that in my, my time in the league, it's one of those things I will never forget. I think one of the things that's interesting about the development of you as an official is that you sort of started, as I think many officials do, I don't want to say by accident, but it was kind of serendipitous. Tell people how you started as an official. Well, I was going to school at Santa Clara University out in the West Coast, and um, Unlike my buddies there that were playing baseball, they had money, I didn't. Um, and so we only had school four nights a week. It was a good Catholic school, um, Jesuit university, and they felt like they piled so much work on us in the classroom that you went to school Monday and Tuesday, you got Wednesday off, then you went Thursday and Friday and the weekend off. And so Wednesday was supposed to be a study day. Well, Tuesday night ended up to be a party night and yada, yada, yada. But I didn't have any money. So my dad had done some officiating, and um, so a guy came to me and said, would, would, you, uh, would you like to go officiate Pop Warner games in Palo Alto, East Palo Alto, California? And uh, you could do three games. Chris, love you, man. Love you. Yeah. He's on the air more than I am. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, listen, the, the more I'm on the air, the worse it is for the officials. So I've gotten, <laughs> I've gotten a lot of airtime uh, in the last couple of years, but... Hey, great to see you. You got it. For the podcast audience that is not actually here, 
Chris Berman is leaving the building. Okay. So, so, anyways, they asked me if I wanted to officiate Pop Warner football three games on Sunday, $10 a game, 30 bucks cash. That, that all of a sudden appealed to me. $30 cash. I was like 145 pounds. That's enough beer for a week. I could stay drunk for a week on 30 bucks. And so I, I, I bought a pair of white knickers and I borrowed one of my dad's old shirt and I went out to East Palo Alto and I walked onto this field and the game started and there's 12 year olds running around. They don't know what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, the parents are standing on the sidelines screaming at me. And I, Peter, I don't know what it was, but it was like somebody had taken a syringe and just filled me with adrenaline. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with being on the football field with kids and the challenge of it and the, and the screaming parents. I fell in love and I was 20, 20 years old and you know, really here 46 years later without an interruption, I have been involved in officiating in one form or another and it really started from then. So. Mike, my pet peeve about officiating, and I'm a bit of an officiating nerd, not in a big way, but a, a little bit, because in 2013, when the MMQB started, I asked the NFL, because the NFL treats officials, you know, basically, they're always off limits, other than when there's a controversial call, then you can get a pool report, one reporter can go in and talk to uh, the referee on the crew. But, but anyway, they're, they're shut off. They're, you know, it's like the, they work in North Korea. I mean, they, don't, they, they can't talk to you. So, but in 2013, I had a chance to travel with a crew uh, to a game, the Gene Sterator crew. And also, during the week, I spent a day with five different officials on the crew. One of them was a social studies teacher in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Another one, um, an executive in the New York City Housing Authority, Wayne Mackey, a head linesman. So all these guys have other jobs. And, but the one thing that I found about this is I think that the pressure on officials, and everybody said, oh, I'll give you pressure. You know, they make 160,000 bucks for working one day a week. I'll give you pressure. But so the one thing that I really, I really identified with is that Gene Sterator, the referee on this crew, the week that I followed him, Gene Sterator, one of his goals in life, other than to be, you know, a good Catholic guy in Western Pennsylvania, one of his goals in life and to be a good dad is to work the Super Bowl. And the week that I was with him, he knew on Monday that he had made a mistake the previous day. The grades come in on Tuesday, and he's nervous. And we sat down on Monday night in Washington, Pennsylvania, in his living room, and watched on TV as Gene Sterator played back and back and back. Houston quarterback Case Keenum at the time in 2013 getting hit by the Arizona Cardinals. And was it a late hit or was it not a late hit? And Sterator didn't throw the flag. And that night, he watched it 40 times and looked it over. And, and, and sometimes he would, you know, he would ask me what I thought. But mostly, he was looking at it over and over again because he knew that 
to some degree, his Super Bowl fate was going to be told the next day. If the league office in New York and the former official who reviewed this game agreed with Sterator, he was still on the Super Bowl highway. If he didn't, he was going to get whacked. And he, you know, that downgrade, it wasn't over, but you can't make a mistake like that and hope to work the Super Bowl unless you're perfect the rest of the year. But anyway, so Tuesday morning comes and Gene Sterator gets an email and his head perceptibly goes down. And at that moment, he said, I'm not working the Super Bowl. Another year, no Super Bowl. I mean, it was, he was crushed. And I said, what happened? And he goes, well, I missed the Keenum call. And, and understand this about Gene Sterator. He doesn't say, ah, those guys in New York, they're idiots. He said, there's nothing he can do about it. He's got to live by their law. Whether he disagrees or whatever, it doesn't matter. That's the law. You can't, you're not going to fight City Hall. So, but he said, I missed another one. They think I missed another one. And there was another call in the game, so he said, it's, it's over. So, but, and I bring that up only because this game moves so fast. After that week, I will never say, you know, Jeff Triplett sucks. I just won't do it, even though I might believe that Jeff Triplett sucks. <laughs> but I just won't do it because this is a hard friggin' job. And I'm not saying that you should excuse every mistake they make. Not at all. I'm just saying, walk a mile in their shoes. It's a pretty hard friggin' job. So I just want to ask you if there's anything, if you sat there with a magic wand and could really think about something that could improve officiating in the NFL, what would it be? I think the time has come to throw tradition away when it comes to officiating, to really kind of take 10 steps backwards and say, what can we do to make it better? And, and by the way, it's not that bad. Um, but unfortunately, the expectation now with technology is perfection, which is impossible at the speed of the game that it happens. Um, but if the expectation is technology, is there something you can do to make it better? So I think if you throw the tradition out the window, um, maybe we take steps, maybe the NFL takes steps to add an eighth official, which they're talking about doing, but they're talking about adding an eighth official deep in the uh, defensive backfield to help on defensive holding on running plays. Um, it's ridiculous. It's not going to help a bit. That's the traditional approach. Let's try to add another official on the field. Well, if you're going to add one, how about we think about putting an eighth guy in stripes, putting him upstairs, putting him in a booth by himself with replay equipment. He's not the replay guy. He's the peanut butter and jelly guy, PBJ, press box judge. And let him, after seeing a quick hit on the video, without interrupting the game and calling for a review, 
or even a coach having to challenge a play, let him make the call quick down through the system that they have now, the communication system, and say, hey, that wasn't a face mask. Hey, um, that pass was incomplete. It happens now. I mean, if you watch, if they call a block in the back and another official, we got a gentleman here who's been on the field for 30-some-odd years working football here in, uh, in, in Houston. I mean, you get together and communicate as a crew. If somebody has a different view, then they'll come and give you their input. You might end up picking the same thing, really the same thing, only using technology. So if you do that, you will certainly eliminate more mistakes. Um, and then the other part that I think, again, taking a different view, um, I think the notion of full-time officiating probably is to the point where it needs to be considered. Now, Peter, you were with those officials for the week. It's pretty close to full-time now. Yeah. You, you, know, mean, you know, the, the, the back judge on that crew, Dino Paganelli, is a social studies teacher in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and by my calculation, including Saturday and Sunday, he's working 35 hours as an official. Because during the week, depending on what day it is, it's a good three to four hours every day during the week that he's looking at tape and reviewing things and taking tests. They take tests every week. And again, no one should say, oh boy, what, what great guys, give them a big raise, do this. Not, but you know, 35 hours a week in the fall, if they worked 55 hours a week, would they be better? It's possible. It's possible. I, am, I have come down on the, on the side of uh, full-time referees as the head of the crew because those guys have a bigger responsibility. Uh, but but who's the, I who's also... The, who's the guy that first said that? Mike Pereira. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> This one, you're taking good credit for it, but I do take this credit. This is for I was, yeah. my wife and I were talking. What would Peter's nickname be? Yeah, you know, you didn't have one. Huh? We were thinking Peter, the man who would be king. Yeah, yeah. No, the man who would steal Mike Pereira's ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I do want to ask you one other thing before we take three questions from the audience. Okay, we spoke last night. I didn't even know this, but. Mike Pereira is involved in something that, that I think is kind of an important deal, and not only an important deal now, but going forward, because he's probably going to expand the program, and it has to do with making our veterans who come back uh, from serving the country, giving them, some of them uh, who don't feel that they have great meaning in life, giving them some meaning. So I want Mike to just explain this because I just think it's the coolest idea. I mean, one day, I mean, I, I, I do like to drive occasionally. I drive to Oregon, and sometimes I drive by myself because my wife doesn't want to go, um, and I want to go fish and play golf. But when I get past Sacramento Airport, I turn off the radio and drive for six hours and try to cleanse my brain and and try to see where I'm at and in one particular drive about a year and a half ago I was driving and thinking that what I do is fun what I do is kind of cool but what I do is really not that meaningful and what could I do in my you know as I begin the last 
third of my life. What could I do to have some meaning? And I was thinking about my days at Santa Clara when I was the draft year lottery guy. That's when your birthday counted and you got a lottery number based on your birthday. They drew your birthdays out of a hat or whatever they did and my number was high so I didn't have to serve, um, wasn't drafted. And then I was thinking about officiating around the country and how we have shortages of high school officials and youth officials now around the country. Tennessee, some Tennessee schools, um, leagues can't even, can't even um, have JV football programs because they don't have enough officials to cover it. And so then I'm thinking, you know, vets, officials. So we started a foundation, um, my wife and I did, and, and, uh, and got some great people involved. It's called Vets to Refs. And so what we do is we give full scholarships to returning vets um, to become sports officials in their communities. And we buy their uniforms, we buy their equipment, we pay their local dues, um, we, we get them mentors. We ran a pilot program just this past football season. We're going to do it for all sports, but we had six vets that got involved. Two were homeless. Um, two were living in a barracks, homeless living in a barracks provided um, by a vet and uh, by, a, by a former vet. And when I talked to these vets, I, they, all they wanted to do, they said that they, it was interesting, it's not that they really cared that much about getting on the airplane first. What they missed was, Peter, they missed being part of a team and they missed having a mission. And when they got involved in officiating, it was amazing because you'd see their eyes light up. They were part of a team. I mean, that's what officiating is. You call them a crew, and they had a mission. And um, it was so heartwarming to see these vets that were struggling. All of a sudden, you know, they get their first paycheck for working, you know, a JV game and a varsity game. They got varsity games in their first year. And I remember my $10 a game I got, they're like packing 210 bucks in their pocket. And, and they were so into it and um and and i'm so into it that uh that uh, we're gonna go regional one more step further this year and then really by the probably by the middle of the summer take it nationally um but it's really cool and thank you for bringing that up oh, i think it's fantastic it's utterly fantastic so now we're going to get back to uh our question for mike Pereira. look at the line Exciting. They probably all hate me, you know. <laughs> I got going, got coming up on a Patriot thing. Remember the tuck play, please. Now that, that, that went your way. That went, I live too close to Oakland, so it's nice to see somebody in that shirt. Um, th thank you, um, Michael Piazza from, from Houston, Texas. And clearly, fairness and equanimity, impartiality are very important to officiating and our perception of officiating. This, this worries me. This oh, worries. yeah. The direction <laughs> yeah, that this is yeah. going worries me. Are, are you but you suck, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. no, no, no. Are, are you aware of any, um, you know, corruption in, in, in officials or any attempts to corrupt officials through bribery to influence games? And then, depending on your answer to that, are you aware of situations or have you suspected in certain situations that officials have been influenced by their personal feelings towards teams or coaches? Well, I mean, let, let's just put it this way. The answer is no, I'm not aware of it happening to us at all. Um, we do such extensive background checks before people get in. 
um, that I really never thought it was possible to happen in professional sports, at least when you discount maybe, you know, soccer and some of the things that happen internationally. But Tim Donahue was a wake-up call in the NBA. And, and I remember Roger Goodell coming into my office the day after that story broke and said, okay, the good news is it's not us. But you know what? Let's pretend it was. And let's look at every policy that we have with the officials and see if we can make any adjustments just to make sure it never does happen because after that you cannot say that it would never happen. And so we did some things like increase the background checks to every year instead of three. We used to give the officials their assignments for the year so they knew in week one where they were going in week 17. And we said, you know, that's too much time if someone were to try to get to an official. So we cut that and said, we'll give them their assignment three weeks in advance so they wouldn't know where they were going. So we did take precautions. Um, and you can't say it would never happen. Um, I can't see in the NFL um, with, you know, as much, you know, as much time as we have to look and we break down every one of the plays they're involved with, I think we would recognize tendencies if there was, and, um, and it really hasn't happened. And as to the second part of my question, the, Im the, the impartiality being affected by personal feelings towards teams and coaches, I mean, is that something? Here's, that the, here's the thing I would say with impartiality or affected by coaches yelling at you. You know, we are all in this room. We are great officials, great officials. I am a good official now because I watch it on TV in slow motion from above. Nobody's standing in between me blocking my view. And I actually have now, watching TV, and so do you, I have longer than the 126th of a second that they have to see something, process it, and make a decision. And it's one of the great myths to me that you're influenced because things happen so fast, you don't know if it's Jerry Rice. All you do is you just see a flash, and you have to make a determination. And the, the, the guy that, there's only one guy that influences you at all, if you have an influence. And Peter referred to it. Everybody wants a Super Bowl. And so the guy that you have to influence is the guy that grades your film, not the coach that's on the sidelines. People say myths, these myths. Makeup call, that was a makeup call. Hmm. A you probably don't know you missed the first one. And then B, B, if you did, why would you want to make two bad calls and then be out of the Super Bowl? Um, there's just so many myths involved in it, so I really don't think there is. Thank you. Next. Well, Mike, uh, my name is Jim O'Neill. I'm from Sugarland, Texas, and congratulations. So is Walt Anderson from yes. Sugarland, Texas. Yeah. We have a dentist, Walt Anderson, a dentist that lives in Sugarland. Sugarland, Texas. Always was amazing to me. It keeps them busy, though, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll say. So, uh, first of all, congratulations on doing a great job for the toughest job that you as a, as a referee you know, will ever love. I, I'm a ref also, different sport, hockey. Oh, uh, you I've tough. done over uh, 3,000 games. Ah, fantastic. And great answer, by the way, on the impartiality, because you're right, it's, it, it happens so fast. Um, I just, the, the vets to refs, 
program. Tonight's the first time I heard of it, and I'm super impressed. And I'll see I, would, I would urge you to go online and look Absolutely. at the website. It is not published yet, um, but um, I'm going to take a little break after Super Bowl and go to uh, Mexico and chase a little golf ball around for a couple of days. But when I get back, we're going to get it finished. And I would say by the end of February, we're going to have it published. And it's just vetstorefs.org. And, awesome. um, and you can go and read about it. So I think this probably gives a lot of people in the room some insight into referees that were actually real people, something besides the, the black and white stripes. Um, I have a similar nonprofit, uh, starskaters.org. One of our players is here. We do uh, sled hockey for mm -hmm. uh, disabled Fantastic. veterans and people with lower body uh, disabilities. It's not what I'm here to talk about. In fact, I, I probably have 100 questions for you. I had to boil it down to one. I think, you know, given the, uh, you mentioned the technology, what seems to me still to be the most arbitrary part of the football game is the spotting of the ball. Is there anything that, I mean, it seems like they've got that, that line on TV seems to be so accurate these days. And you see one referee have it, and he hands it to the next guy, and he seems to slide over a bit. I, not being a football ref, I don't know the process, but I'm also wondering if there's anything within technology that could maybe improve that because, you know, when you get out that little chain and it's an 18th of an inch and it's a first down or not, Obviously, the spot is critical. Yeah, and, you know, it's an interesting question because I had it proposed um, to me a lot. Could we put a chip in the football? Um, they did put a chip in the football this year, um, and it was interesting, but they did it on an experimental basis really to find out, for example, when you're looking at successful field goals, and they're always wanting teams to go for touchdowns instead of field goals. When you're looking at a successful field goal, the chip allowed them to – put together some data to say that if you shrunk the goalpost by a foot on each side, what would it do to the accuracy rate of field goal? So they did put a chip in, and then they used it for player participation, too. Was that preseason games? Yes, or the whole that year? was preseason pre games. And then there was one, I think some Thursday night games they did it, too. But here's my concern with a chip. You can put a chip in the ball. But then you better put a chip in the guy's knee too, you know, because how do you, you the, the ball, the ball is one thing, but it, the ball's not that's not over until the knee hits the ground or the shoulder hits the ground. So, how how accurate is that going to be? And um, you know, although I feel like we're taking the game so far off the field now with technology, I am concerned that we go a little bit too far. I'm also a little bit of tradition. You said you could you could set up lasers to, you know, to to replace the chain crews, for example. You could do that, but I love the tradition of, you know, some old guys running out there with your chain, and you put, the thing, <laughs> you put it down, and you go, you know. So I hope good or not go good, yeah. So just as a, a great answer, just as a follow up, then. With all the replay and everything else as an official, do you think it's, it, there's more stress as an official or more pressure now that you've got all of these eyeballs and reviews or you know, in it, the it's old just, It's just how you look at it. And I said that when, t when instant replay came in. I said if it, if it scares you, if replay scares you, then go find something else to do. If you could use that as a challenge... And I said, you will actually find that replay is, in many, many cases, going to show how difficult it is and how good they really are. And, and I think when it comes to pressure now, when you, you know, when you start, they all started like me doing Pop Warner football. You're, you're used to the pressure, and it doesn't bother you. If it does, then that's usually when pressure begins to really bother you, that's when you've 
usually hit the downside of the bell curve, and, um, and it's close to being over anyways. Thanks for your question. Next. David Locke from Framingham, Massachusetts, originally live in Houston now. <laughs> I'll spare you a question about equipment violations and equitable punishment. Um, oh my God, I'm so deflated that you're not going to ask me that. <laughs> well played, well played. So given the, uh, the level of scrutiny that officials face today, do you think the NFL has an officiating problem? And what do you think a solution is to that problem or the perception that there is a problem? Well, I don't think we'll ever get beyond the perception because I think people demand, um, demand perfection now. And they're the only, by the way, they're the only, the only area of the game that is upheld to that level that you expect perfection. I mean, players drop passes. Runners fumble balls, quarterbacks throw interception, coaches call bad plays. Ask Pete Carroll, huh? Um, you know, so, 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 you know, everybody makes mistakes. I just hope we don't get too far away from the human element of the game and recognize that there are going to be mistakes. Back to Bill Parcells. When he got back in with Dallas, I was the head of officiating at the time. He called me and said, you're going to love that I'm in the back of the league. And I said, why? He said, because I am never going to call you. Mom. He goes, I don't want anybody ever to think that officiating cost us a game. Ever. I don't want my players, my assistant coaches. And that was the old school. That was the Bill Parcells. That was the Marty Schottenheimers. Now, today... Even in the coaching ranks, everybody wants to blame somebody. And we're the likely ones to blame. Um, and, and so I don't know what we can do other than maybe try something different in the technology or have the referees being full-time, but it's never going to be perfect. We just have to realize that. Thank you. A couple more quick ones. How's it going? My name is Sam Boyer from Houston, Texas. Big fan. Um, and then you, you pointed toward Peter. <laughs> he did. He looked right at you. He didn't look at me at all. Both of you. Um, my question is regarding discretionary replay. And it seems to be a lot of people calling for possibility of officials being able to, replay, being able to replay discretionary calls such as pass interference holding, um, especially in the NFL where, you know, pass interference spot foul can, can – swing the momentum of a game uh, in a large way. just want to know, you know what your thoughts are on, the, on that subject and if allowing them to start replaying discretionary calls would open to Pandora's box of replaying everything. Well, Pandora's box is open to a degree. Um, I, I, I'm not for that, um, and, and I'm not for the, what's always called the Bill Belichick proposal. Let, let, them, let the coaches challenge anything. I am. No, I'm not. <laughs> And the reason, the reason that I'm not is everybody says, well, we don't want, they don't want more challenges. I mean, we just want the same amount of challenges, two challenges. If we get them both right, we get a third. Okay, so they don't want more challenges. But let's be realistic. If you look at the stats right now, you know how many coaches' challenges there are in a game? Less than one. It's like 0.7 coaches' challenges per game. They automatically confirm touchdowns. They automatically confirm um, uh, turnovers. And if they can't confirm it, then they put it. They call down for a review. The replay official does. So you have 0.7 coaches challenges. You let them review everything, 
And that 0.7 is going to go to 4.7, in my opinion. And if you go from 4.7, when you think of, um, you know, when you think of the number of times that we interrupt the game, um, I think it's, I love the way that Chris Berman referred to Fox, that other network, I think he said. <laughs> 22 commercial breaks within the, within, the, within the quarters, 22 commercial breaks, then you've got the, the, the breaks between the quarters that run two and a half to three minutes, and then you start adding the number of stops per game, which right now is about two, but you take that to six. But you can coordinate the commercials to uh, fall into line. You wouldn't necessarily have to do all of the commercials after touchdowns or after field goals, or after a kickoff. You could wait. If you know that there are X number of replays coming, then you just wait and I you just, take them then. You know, it's fun to watch a game here, and you can sit here in Houston and have a beer in the stands while you're watching all these breaks. But if you're in Buffalo in December, and it's sleeting outside, <laughs> and you're in the stands, the pace of the game to me already is ridiculous. And to me, if you start doing stuff That's like the that, big argument. The big it. argument is the pace of the game. Yeah. But I, uh, anyway. Anyways. It, I was going to say, Roger Goodell did mention that uh, this week, um, cutting down on um, replays between kickoffs and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, he also said that he was thinking about cutting down the number of commercials per quarter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great until maybe they say to him, okay, okay, well, then we're going to take like $2 billion off the top. We got our last question for Mike Pereira of Fox Sports. Um, <clears throat> hi, my name is Marissa Turner. I'm originally from Waukesha, Wisconsin, so go Packers. That's right. No, they, they already left. You don't have to say go Packers. <laughs> All right, I was going to ask an easy question. No, I'm just joking. I'll ask my, my original question. Like others in, in the line, um, I had a few bumping around in my head, but the one that kind of sticks around is um, Cam Newton. You know, young quarterback, really good quarterback. Um, he often mentions that he, they're not calling enough, you know, roughing penalties on him. And, you know, the rumors are because he's young and older quarterbacks uh, tend to get more, um, more calls like that. Uh, what do you think about those things? Well, there's another one of the myths. I mean, that younger quarterbacks don't get the calls. Let's go to the facts. And the facts are, when you go back and look at things, back in my day when I was there, I had a quarterback that I had, the same, that I had to deal with that had the same complaints. He was getting hit and not getting the calls. His name was Michael Vick. What does Michael Vick and Cam Newton have in common? They like to run. They like to run. They like to become runners. And when you become a runner, you get less protection when you become a runner. And when you become a runner, you're harder to officiate. Because the quarterback, the Gene Steratores of the world, are in charge of calling roughing the passer. And if you're on the, on the throwing side of the quarterback, which they are, so in Cam Newton's case, on the right side, and then Cam runs left, I'd say probably chances are that Cam Newton is faster than Gene Steratore. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's a long ways away. And, and he becomes tougher to officiate just because of the fact that he runs like the other quarterbacks. You lose some protections um, when you do take off. But I do think, though, in this day and age of protecting quarterbacks, that they may look at in this offseason to open it up and not just have the referee be in charge of hits in the quarterback. Let the umpire call it if he sees it from over here. Let the headlinesman call it if he sees it, too. That may happen because, obviously, they want to protect him. But it, uh, trust me. 
It has nothing to do with being young. Um, uh, it's, uh, again, it's um, kind of one of those myths. So, Mike, I really want to thank you for coming by and uh, talking about uh, <laughs> officials being people, too. Thanks very much. And as Mike takes his leave, um, I want everybody to remember vets to refs. And I will be writing about this in my column this year. So if you read Monday Morning Quarterback, you're going to read about this program. Uh, I think it's great. This is the kind of thing that we need to draw attention to in this country. Mike Pereira, thanks so much for coming. You got it, Peter. My thanks to my guests, Mike Greenberg and Mike Pereira. Very stimulating talk in this podcast. So before we go out, let's talk about what everyone around the league is talking about as the offseason really gets going seriously. Everybody is talking about what's going to happen to quarterbacks around the NFL. Where's Tony Romo going? So the Cowboys almost certainly are going to have to end up cutting Tony Romo. Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk has written about this extensively, and I think he's right. When he first wrote about it a month or so ago, I said, they're not going to give him away. But at the end of the day, I think the Cowboys are going to have no choice. I do think they're going to release Romo. Uh, the most interesting places, the most logical places for him are Houston or Kansas City, teams that both have other quarterbacks. So if Romo succumbs to injury again, you know, obviously those teams can cope uh, with good defenses. And in Kansas City's case, a good quarterback, just not a great one in Alex Smith. Then you get to New England, Jimmy Garoppolo. You know, will the Patriots trade him? I've been on record as saying I don't think they will. It's a very simple reason. I think Bill Belichick feels he would rather have insurance this season for a 40-year-old quarterback in Tom Brady, even if it means that next year he loses Garoppolo and gets no compensation for him. So why does Belichick feel that way? I think it's because you look at this offense right now. On the drive that tied the Super Bowl in Houston against Atlanta, Patriots went 91 yards at the end of the fourth quarter. All the receivers who touch the ball on that drive, the running backs in the game, you know, as well, the quarterback, Tom Brady, the offensive line, one of those players, one of those 11 players out of all those was a top 70 draft choice. And that was Nate Solder, the left tackle. Everybody else drafted down the line. So you might think that, hey, Belichick would love to have these extra picks. Of course he would. Any Anybody would. But Belichick, I believe, values the insurance policy that is Jimmy Garoppolo more. Now, I could be wrong about that. I'm trying to think like Belichick, and I don't know if I can. But if I were him, I'd hang on to Garoppolo. And then all the quarterbacks in college, you know, Mitch Trubisky, uh, Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Kaiser of Notre Dame. And you look at all those guys, and to me, the most interesting storyline for the next three months, you know, all through March, all through April, and, and then obviously the rest of February, is going to be when the musical chairs stop at quarterback, who is going to have whom? And I'll just throw out my guess on a couple of these. I think Cleveland ends up with Trubisky. I think New England hangs on to Garoppolo. I think even though they've shown no sign and no interest right now in this, 
I really think that the Houston Texans are the most logical place for Tony Romo. I kind of hope he goes there. I think Deshaun Kaiser, Deshaun Watson is going to be the San Francisco choice. And then the one that's left over after that, I would place the best odds for him to go to the Chicago Bears. But those are the most interesting names and faces right now on the NFL landscape. Free agency is coming up, but it's not going to be a huge year for free agency. Not a lot of huge names, unless, of course, the San Francisco 49ers get very gutsy and really go for it and try to steal Kirk Cousins from Washington. That also is possible. But stay tuned. The next eight or ten weeks are going to be very, very interesting until the musical chairs at quarterback around the NFL stop. Thanks to my guests, Mike Greenberg and Mike Pereira. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Adam Schefter, Larry Fitzgerald, and Mike Florio. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts in our series as well with Albert Breer, Gary Gramling, and Andy Benoit. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. Thanks, of course, to my sponsors, SeatGeek and Blue Apron. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.